Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a broadcaster and a writer and I'm your chief investigator of images. Utterly, utterly, utterly excited today, as if my excitement levels can't get much higher. I am with someone who has just totally captivated me on the screen recently in her BBC Four series, A Stitch in Time, Amber Butchart. Now, I wrote to you, didn't I? I said, oh, I love your programme so much. Do you want to do an art detective? You did, and I in fact, wrote back and said, oh my God, it's my favourite podcast. Which <laughs> was I so would nice. I would love to, I would absolutely love to. We did have a bit of a love-in. Yeah, we? we did. <laughs> yeah. We did have a mutual appreciation moment, yeah. Yeah. But this is brilliant because um, we're actually in the National Gallery. We've come into this really quite exciting private exhibition that's on at the moment. Yeah. Van Eyck and the pre-rafts. Because obviously the thing I most wanted to do with you was the Arnold Feeney portrait. Your programme on it was amazing. Tell me a bit more about how the series came about. And Well, the series actually grew out of um, um, an Inside Versailles section that I filmed with Greg Jenner and oh, Kate Williams. Oh, two of my dear friends. Both yeah. been on the podcast too. They have indeed. <laughs> they have indeed. Both brilliant uh, public historians. Yeah. Um, I, filmed, uh, I filmed a section for that on fashion at the court of Louis XIV. Yeah. And um, based on that, the, sort of the producers of the show just really enjoyed it, loved the fact that we were talking about a painting and that you can, you know, tell all of this stuff about um, sort of society and politics at the time from the clothing that people wore and how this was represented in paintings. Now, I'd actually been in conversations with the BBC for quite a few years trying to pitch various stuff that had never really come off. And they sort of put, came up with the format of the show, which is absolutely brilliant. I love it so much. The fact that it mixes art history fashion history, the actual, you know, recreation of Absolutely. garments. Absolutely. That's the bit that just staggers me. I love it because there is that, always that sort of slight division between the object itself and how it's created. And there's always a hunger to understand the processes. But it's only when you see your lovely team working behind the scenes endlessly cutting that material. And it was things like looking at, I mean, we're standing in front of it. We're standing in front of this incredible 
painting, um, one of the top 30 paintings in the National Gallery, one of the most famous paintings from the, the Northern Renaissance. And it was things like the detailing on the, the pinchwork at the front. That, I couldn't believe the agony that those people were going through. I know, I know. It is just unbelievable. That was one of the things I really wanted to get across with the show, the fact that we are so divorced from the making of clothing today, where all of us, we're so used to go, walking into a shop, buying anything we want to wear immediately, relatively cheap price points, you know. Mm. We've completely lost sense of the amount of labor that goes into this. The fact that for centuries, textiles were one of the most expensive things you would own. People would bequeath it in their wills. Uh, you know, we, we just have no idea of this in mm. the 21st century. Mm. And so when you look at a portrait like the Arnolfini portrait, the silhouette and the, the dress that this, the gown that she's wearing is also so alien to mm. 21st century eyes that actually recreating it and, well, for me, having the experience worn the recreation mm. is just amazingly exciting and invaluable and just can tell you so much. And, it, and I think you're right. I mean, even go back a generation, I remember constantly my mum having the, the sewing machine on the go and, and you'd repair things and you'd you know, fix things up or customise them. And we just don't do it as much uh, now. But but your work's interesting, isn't it? Because you're, you're an academic as well as, as a broadcaster. But you look very closely at this relationship between fashion, culture, society... And of course, it, it, I mean, it's difficult for me as a medievalist because one of the things that's lost first are fabrics, in things that, that are perishable. Yeah. Um, but they can be the best documents of how people want to be perceived, how they want to represent themselves. They still are, aren't they? Well, absolutely. And I mean, similar to, you know, to art history when you're looking at images, if you're thinking about a society that's largely illiterate, mm -hmm. then those kinds of visual symbols take on even more importance, uh, you know, in terms of reading... Um, sort of status, wealth, gender, you know, all of these aspects of identity, these kind of visual clues are absolutely paramount. I mean, I still do it today when I do sort of Anglo-Saxon jewellery. I'll say when, when a woman goes to choose an engagement ring, it can take months just to get the exact cut of the stain and the shape that, that they feel defines them best. Yeah. And we, there's a whole language of dress, jewellery, attire that each generation and each location has. And, and I find it fascinating what you do, sort of unpacking that and seeing what the clothes themselves tell you about the time. Well, um, it's, what I love about it is that it's, it's a mixture. You've got the, you, of course, you've got the sort of art historical elements, but you've also, it's this real focus on material culture. Mm. And what I love about the study of material culture is that from one object, you can look at it in so many different ways and it can tell us so many stories, as you know. <laughs> um, you know, not only the actual finished object itself and what it represents, and what it's used for and why it was created, but the actual people who made it, the different stages that it had to go through, the materials it's made from, all of this, you mm. just, you know, you could go on forever and ever and ever mm. just from one object. Um, and that, I just, it's fascinating. And you studied fashion, but as an art historian? No, I actually, I actually started off studying literature. Did, did you like me? Yes. yes. Oh, it's the same. Oh my yes. goodness. I, yeah, I did a literature degree first of all at uh, King's College I in did London. Not know that. How cool. Yeah, and then after I finished my degree, I did not know what I wanted to do. I'd always loved reading and studying and writing, and I left university and felt a little bit lost. Mm -hmm. um, so I got a job at my favourite shop, which was a vintage clothing shop called Beyond Retro, and I quite quickly became the buyer for this shop. Um, I'd always loved old clothes. I'd always loved the kind of stories that come with old clothes. 
So it was through working as the buyer that I started to get, what, I mean, essentially, what was my first experience of material culture, I suppose. Mm. And I became obsessed with sort of researching the social history behind the pieces we were selling. And, you know, I would spend my lunch breaks, like, reading, like, fashion history books. And so after a while, I decided to do a master's at London College of Fashion. Yes which is where I still teach. And so there I really married up the, you know, the academic stuff, the mm. theory that I'd been, that I'd always loved with the actual clothing itself. And it all oh. kind of meshed together. Amazing. And I think this is a, oh, this is a whole another argument that's in the newspapers at the moment about the, the value of humanities as in the job market. But I think we're both similar. We both love music. We love culture, we love literature, we love art. Yeah. And actually, there are so many useful directions for those passions to go in, aren't there? Totally, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's invaluable. I mean, in terms of, you know, sort of understanding societies, cultures, understanding what's come before, understanding what it can tell us about the present world. I mean, it's just, and not to mention, you know, the critical skills that you learn, of course. And today, more important than ever is the ability to look at sources and decide which sources are actually viable, um, are, you know, verifiable. I mean, in our post-fact Oh, my age, God, exactly. I mean, I think that the study of history is really Invaluable more important than ever. Than ever. And, yeah. and, and visual culture. And this is something that, obviously, we're going to move towards the painting. It's been quite busy. Quite everyone's interested in it. But again, I, I mean, I think the job of the art historian, the, the, the work that, that you and I do in terms of trying to get people to look closely at old images to understand their own time better. This is, in, it's the most mysterious and enigmatic painting in many ways. It has, it's been a problem for so many writers about art because what is it? Is it a marriage contract? Is she pregnant? Is she not? What's, what's going on? It is a secular scene by Van Eyck. And Van mm -hmm. Eyck's usually painting religious paintings. We know him best for things like the Ghent altarpiece. But in this case, we seem to be brought into a Netherlandish room, an interior. You've obviously looked at this a lot. How does it make you feel, this painting? Well, it's, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating, this painting, isn't it? And it's well, arguably the best, the sort of most debated picture in Western art history, mm -hmm. I think, for a reason. I think that secular element that you mentioned is probably quite key to that. Mm. Where we do seem to be looking at quite an intimate um, uh, sort of scene here. It looks like it's a bedroom. Um, it looks like it's a couple, obviously. So all of these things immediately sort of, you know, make us interested. We want to know more. Who are these people? What's, you know, what's happening? I think that's why there have been so many theories about this. When I look at it, I mean, I'm, I've always just been bowled over by the green dress. Have you? That's the thing that I'm most drawn to. I mean, in most images, to be honest, I obviously always go to the clothing first. Yes. Um, and it's, green is one of my favourite colours. I, I even said that in the show. Yes. So I can't deny that, you know, that's something that just completely... But the way the fabric yeah, is actually a bit close in this painting it's, as well... It's only when you get gorgeous. yourself right up against it that you see... I mean, in your programme, you explored this... This area here, is it called pelting? What um, did they call this bit? It's called dagging. Dagging, yeah. that's it. Yeah. And it's done with these long strips that are then folded back up on themselves. And, and it looked incredible in the finished piece that was made. Absolutely incredible. But I've never been able to understand the technology behind this. When I've looked at it, I've thought, I don't understand how that works. Yeah. Because there are these exceptionally long sleeves that almost come down to floor level, coated with the, the miniver or the, the fur there. Um, 
And it just does... I, I couldn't understand how it had such depth and strength, but you explored all of that in the programme. Well, exactly. And it is, you know, big shout-out here to Ninia Michaela, the historical tailor on the show. She's an absolute genius. I could believe and it, yeah. She has skills that I absolutely don't have. <laughs> I have tried to dabble in fashion design and, uh, you know, making my own clothes at various points in the past. And I, I'm not very good at it, I'll be honest. Oh. I'm really bad at taking a flat piece of fabric and envisaging it as a 3D garment. Yeah. I'm really bad at it. What, what Ninja is brilliant at doing is deconstructing clothing from paintings right. and then obviously recreating them herself. So when she told me how these, this amazing dagging, these amazing sleeves were created, mm. it blew my mind. Because I, similar to you, you look at it and it's, you've just wowed, you're bowled over by well, this also, incredible Well, also, I mean, I partly worry... When I used to look at this, before I saw your, your documentary, I used to think it was part fantasy. You know, like, when you see the Virgin Mary in Van Eyck paintings, there, there's such exuberance of, of colour and texture of fabric and you just think no one in real life looks like that. Yeah. That's a religious figure who is sort of shown in the celestial realm. But these are not religious figures. They are people. Yeah. And this must be real. But, but there's so many elements of the dress that sort of defy logic. Uh, the dagging's part of it. But also there's this misconception that she's pregnant, of yeah. course, which... Yeah. Um, I think any medievalist knows that she wasn't yeah. because this is a very traditional way for women to hold their garments up. Yeah. But you actually tried on a version of this. Yeah. And it's damn heavy, yeah? So heavy, <laughs> so heavy. I mean, that's really the most fascinating thing is finding that the stance, the way she's been painted in this uh, portrait is exactly how you stand. You yeah. have to lean back a bit to be able to grab the weight of the fabric because there's is the fur is the fur you. all the way underneath as well in the it one that's fully that, lined was fully there? lined in the one that we did obviously not real fur um, we used fake fur Ninia consulted with a fur expert now the, the fur actually has caught, has been the subject of some debate since mm. the show was on traditionally it's largely thought to be Miniver mm. like squirrel the underbelly of squirrels Ninia and her fur expert thought that it could possibly be Arctic fox because, Ooh. interestingly, in a lot of paintings that have used Minerva, because what you're seeing is small strips of fabric mm. joined together, some artists actually depict these joins in right. the paintings. This portrait has no joins. Mm. Now, of course, you get into a sort of methodological dilemma here because it could be artistic license. Could it could be also fact. be uh, virtuosity that the that the the original was trying to show no seams, yes. that they're so good and so exquisite that they can hide the seams. But yeah, so so Arctic Fox was proposed as a solution. So Arctic <gasps> Fox was proposed as a solution. Now, obviously, no Arctic foxes were hurt in the making of this program, <laughs> <laughs> so no need to worry about that. Um, but it was fully lined with fake fur, so I mean. Yeah. Imagine the heat and the weight, just like absolutely. I mean, it's I've not worn and likely will never wear anything like it again. And, and it was incredible. so, I mean, difficult to move in. Did you have much mobility? Not too much mobility. No, you could move around in it, but you know, you're trailing this absolute weight around with you. Yeah. You certainly couldn't move very fast. You could move, you could walk around, but you wouldn't be like running a marathon or anything, you know, at all. I mean, it's, which obviously is all part and parcel of 
the purpose for this gown, she's not meant to move. She's mm. supposed to be, you know, look so wealthy that she doesn't have to move. She's obviously not Got involved in any kind of manual labour. Servants will do everything for her and she will be waited on hand and foot. And I suppose the closest modern parallel we have, of course, is the bridal gown. That sometimes when a woman is in their, their bridal gown, they can't move, they're restricted. And, and in a sense, it's that idea of the floating lady, the eternal sort of maiden. Yeah. Um, but actually, it's saying something social isn't it about the, her social standing that she is that important definitely and also well in the case of this painting people think that the Arnolfinis are likely very wealthy cloth merchants so in some ways this could almost be read as an advertisement Absolutely. for their wares yes you know we see these like, folds and folds and folds of this sumptuous green wool green was quite difficult to dye because obviously it takes two colors it's not just a one dye process. Well, you and I have both got a bit of a passion now for dyeing the, the old-fashioned Absolutely. way. It's a magic, isn't it? I absolutely loved it. Because we work with the same person, the woman I, that you were doing the Debbie. dyeing with. Yeah, Debbie, I did um, I did some with her as well. And it is like alchemy. It really when she is. puts it in those cauldrons and spins really. it around, it comes out like bright yellow and you just think, oh my goodness. I absolutely loved it. I really did. And the vibrancy, yeah. you just don't think, you know, we're so used to thinking about the, the past in black and white because of photos or because things age, but it was there was so much vibrancy. Well, it's almost garish. This is the thing I'm always saying. I mean, even in this setting here, um, you know, if you did go into a medieval church, or, or I mean, this is dated to 1434, that's a high medieval, early Renaissance uh, environment. Very, very colourful. Everything's lavish and colourful. And actually, it's paintings like this that, that remain as that document, isn't, aren't they, really? Yeah, Because this is colourful. It's lush. I mean, the bed in the background, the seat with this red velvet everywhere. It's yeah. probably a drawing room, isn't it? This is sort of an invitation space. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and there are, you know, textiles play such an important part in this painting. Yeah. Not only what she's wearing, but, you know, he is dressed in the height of fashion with this incredibly distinctive hat, of course, and all the drapery around them as well. But it's interesting you mentioned medieval churches because when I was researching this painting, one of the most interesting theories I actually came across was the idea, so this, the, the fake idea that she's pregnant mm. that we have. And you mentioned, you know, we see this in a lot of um, imagery from this time. We even see it when women are depicted nude. They're mm -hmm. depicted with this kind of protruding stomach. Absolutely. Well, his Ghent altarpiece, where Eve. he has Adam and Eve, yeah. Eve is shown in that, with that, that physique. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Now, that absolutely fascinated me. One of the theories I read was that it was um, all sort of to do with the Gothic aesthetic, that it was mirroring that kind of swelling you get in Gothic architecture. I just thought that was such a fantastic idea. Honestly, it's so exciting when you think about it. It's the burgeoning body, but it's one of the things that Van Eyck, the more you look into the time in the, that he made his paintings and the, the subject matter he depicted, there's this, this amazing painting that he does of the Virgin inside a Gothic church where she's extended up to 70 feet and it's because there's this really interesting um, progression of the cult of the Virgin Mary at this stage where she's seen as Ecclesia, the church, and she's the body of all the faithful. Oh, and so wow. there's sort of swelling to encompass all of the faithful. It's, it's amazing. That's so there's always so symbolism. And I think, you know, that's what's so amazing about this painting as well. Every detail has potentially got a whole narrative behind it, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And for me, that idea of that particular idealized female body, whether it's, you know, whether it's referring to an idea of fecundity, even though there were many, like, virgins who are depicted in this way as well mm. but I found that so interesting so much of the work I do at London College of Fashion especially when we when we teach there 
we, you know, you can't think about, you can't theorize around clothes without thinking about the body Absolutely. underneath it. So some of the first classes that we teach our design students are about feminist theory, about the body, basically, wow. and about changing beauty ideals through history. Wow. So for me to come across this kind of female shape that to us today, you know, is the sort of antithesis of the sort of classical ideal, I suppose, to come across this as a kind of ideal female form was absolutely fascinating. I was so interested. There's so much that. About, about both of them is obviously the aesthetic of the time because her face even, her hair, the way that her hair's been braided into these particular patterns, but the very, very long forehead that she's yeah. been given, which is almost unnatural. I mean, Van Eyck, when he does his portraits, he will bring a bit of poetic license to things like, like the height of the forehead. But that's seen as a real sign of nobility, a sign of regalness, you know, that the higher the hairline, the better. And then we have our chap over yeah. here. Now, I understand that he's, his hat is actually made of straw. Have I got that wrong? I have read both straw and I've read beaver as well. Yeah, you see, beaver it's, seems more sensible. Yeah. I'm not sure it looks like straw. Because he's certainly got this amazing tabard, yeah. uh, which, is again, is fur-lined. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the way that Van Eyck has caught... The luster, yeah. that is done through two, two contrasting colours, the, the, the sort of the browny purple and the bright blue. And that gives that sheen, doesn't it, of, yeah. of the material. So again, I think you're probably right, it's like a catalogue or an, an advert for yeah. what they're selling, what isn't they it? they're selling, exactly. I think that's really good, um, a, a really good theory, to be honest. Mm. And also in the colour green, um, the art historian we spoke to on the show, she talked about it representing money as well. Ooh. Also, it was a colour that was often worn around May Day, which again had this association with sort of fertility, even though we know she's not pregnant. There are still these kind of, you know, associations going on in this painting. Yeah. It just keeps giving and keeps <laughs> giving. And you can see why people have just been obsessed with it for centuries, really. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One of the things that's so magical about it, of course, is that it's got this perspective, uh, this sense of perspective, fixed point, which is absolutely exquisitely done here, isn't it? Because obviously the, the lines all converge around this sort of area. 
you could say around the mirror that yeah. almost feels like an eye in yeah. the center, but it's beautifully done so that the, the roof recedes, the window recedes, um, and the mirror is, is one of the big enigmas in this, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, for us today in the 21st century, that has a whole new meaning, I suppose, doesn't it? It's, mm. you know, you can, the, the argument is you can see the artist in there. It's almost like a selfie. Uh, yeah. You know? <laughs> but this is the thing as well, because mirrors, I mean, I often say this, what's, what else is exciting in this is that you've got glass. I mean, that excites me, because you can see the attempts at... Um, just only one panel of it is glass. It's gorgeous. But it's glass, not, it? at this stage, even in the 50th century, it's very, very hard to create large panels of clear glass. So these are sort of like bottle ends that are stuck together. Brilliant. Um, but things like that that we take for granted, glass, reflective surfaces, yeah. those are incredibly hard to make at this point. So just the fact they have those two elements on display... That's like new technology, it's sort of fancy households. Exactly. They're, again, it's just all about sort of saying we are completely up to the minute, we Ooh. are very, very wealthy, we have the latest technology, we have the latest fashions, yeah. you know, this is us. We're very, very important people. Exactly. <laughs> down to, right down to the origin. Oranges. Oranges. I'm just, <laughs> come on, do this word. Right down to the oranges. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think are, again, a sign of trade and exchange and wealth, aren't they? Because yeah. they're, they're very desirable yes. in, in the Netherlands at this point. Definitely, definitely. And even also the colours that the, the man is wearing, we think mm. of that today as being quite sombre, mm. but actually again black, very, very expensive, yeah. very difficult to create. And these sort of plum tones that you see as well, purple of course always associated with nobility, with the absolute sort of highest status. Again, yes. very, very difficult to Produced, to but it goes right back to imperial purple. Yeah, the use of shells to create that for the for the imperial household, and I think yeah. that you know it is a a, a regal colour, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. But yeah. I think even down, I mean, the, the blue sleeves, because again, this was something else I was fascinated about in the program was the under. Because there's a whole layer of clothing underneath the green dress as yeah. well, isn't it? And yeah. indeed, underneath his tabard, he's wearing a full uh, black smock as well. Yeah, but the flash of blue. The display of the bands around the wrist, it's all suggested extra layers of wealth, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also, if you can see on the belt, we've actually oh, got yeah. sort of gold embroidery on the belt as well that oh, matches gosh, the bracelets. Gosh, I've never seen that. Yeah, of course. It's really, we actually, we had this created, you couldn't quite see it in the show, but with mm. this beautiful gold embroidery on the belt. Right. Um, so, I mean, it really is down to the last detail, just cons conspicuous consumption. Exactly. exactly. Advertising their own wealth. Yeah. Um, and, and, I mean, I think that the idea that this is... I mean, that there's lots of different theories for what's going on in this image. As I mentioned right at the top, is it a marriage? There was a whole fantastical element of um, understanding, which was, is it, in fact, that she's pregnant and they're having to do a quickie marriage to <laughs> yeah. validate it? Yeah. I yeah. don't think so. Yeah. But we do have two witnesses in the back. Yeah. And, I mean, this is... A, this is a trick that some of the greatest artists, artists employ, uh, people like Valethqueth, where you have a mirror reflecting back. And Manet, of course, in the Bar de Folie Berger, where you get the reflection of the, the person back. Yeah. It's, it's both virtuosic from the point of view of the artist, but it does also suggest the scale of the room and the fact that they are being witnessed. Something is potentially being witnessed here, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I, I, I definitely think that's, that's an important element to the image. One, I mean, one of the other theories I've read 
was that this could possibly be a, a portrait of his late wife. Mm, yes, so but it, she's deceased, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and so this is almost like a memorial painting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In which case, the idea of there being witnesses, you know, there has mm. an even different the sort of a poignancy to that. Well, the single candle, is that the Panofsky argument? Because there's the single candle burning in the chandelier, isn't there? Yeah. Which could be that this is sort of a life snuffed out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also... The Arnolfini is likely to be one of two different Arnolfini cousins. Yes. Um, and one of them, his first wife, died a couple of years before this portrait painting was painted, which is why people think it could be in remembrance of her. Mm. I yeah. mean, there's so many different things that we can read symbolically. There's the dog of fidelity. I love the dog. The dog is lovely. The detailing. <laughs> have, you got, have you ever kind of zoomed in on it and macro? Because honestly, every single piece it's of like fur. the light in his eyes and stuff. It's like really... Well, this, this is one of the other exciting things that I was reading about with this. Um, can you see the amber prayer beads that hang next to yes, the mirror? Yes, yeah. So um, the, every one of the reflections painted on there is reflecting back elements of the room oh, on God. a microscopic level. So That's one amazing. of the arguments is that Van Eyck is one of the first people to paint using a magnifying glass. <gasps> wow. Yeah, that he's actually managing to get that level of detail under oh, magnification. Isn't that exciting? That's really exciting. And also that, you know, that just the idea that there is so much glass and reflection going on in this anyway. It's virtuous. The idea mm. that he was possibly using that sort of cutting-edge technology as well, involving glass. It's just... Uh, it's so exciting. It's just, it is, and, yeah. I mean, I love the details, the little roundels on the edge of the mirror, because each one's a little miniature religious story, a little... Uh, stories from the Gospels, I think. And then, of course, you've got his graffiti. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's brilliant, Van Eyck, because he does sign everything, which is quite... And he's the only one of the Netherlandish Northern Renaissance artists at this point who's signing. Oh, right. Uh, but he, he essentially, it says... Van Eyck was here. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> but he's, Brilliant. he's used this leak. That's the other reason that it could be some sort of legal document because the handwriting he's used is actually the, the one that you would get in legal documents. It's a legal oh, that's hand. that's interesting. Yeah. Right. So oh. again, it kind of makes us think, yeah, is it a marriage contract? Or like you say, is it some sort of commemoration for, for the passing? Yeah. Um, but yeah. I, mean, I just love it because of the, the intimacy of the scene. It is a small space, and, and actually I always find it quite claustrophobic, I don't know. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean, but what adds to that feeling of claustrophobia is the volume of their clothes. Right. They take up so much of that space, don't they? Yeah. So, you know, it's just kind of really, it adds to this, you know, we're too big for this space. We're, you know, again, we're just like, we're so, so important. But ego. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it is, yeah, I totally agree. And I hadn't thought, because it's the train. I think that's partly what makes me uncomfortable. The train actually comes up to the frame. Yeah. And again, yeah. I mean, this isn't the original, but Van Eyck used to paint and, and in, integrate his frames into the paintings. He's quite, the frames took as much effort as the paintings. Right. And so there is a deliberate choice there to, to kind of rub it up against the frame, I think. And yeah. You do feel like the way the fixed point perspective has been done as well, yeah, they're bursting out of their space. They're bigger yeah, than this. Definitely, exactly. Yeah. One of the other things that, that interests me about this is that I think it's a great example of a painting where studying fashion history can really add something to certain art historical interpretations. Yeah. Some early interpretations that very much focused on the idea of it being about fertility um, mm. said that she is barefoot. But we can't actually see her feet, you'll mm. notice in here. So people assume she was barefoot because there are discarded supposed yeah. shoes around. But what these actually are, they're not shoes, as you know, 
their patterns, their overshoes, so they'd be worn over your actual shoes to protect your shoes when you're walking around in the grime of the streets. Exactly. So having that knowledge of fashion history can actually, you know, help to dispel that previous sort of art historical theory. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, there's been so many uh, things written about this. One of the ideas for the discarded shoes is that they're about to take to the marriage bed to consummate their marriage. Yeah. Again, with a complete misunderstanding of what these things were. What they're really showing is this is an interior space. Exactly. That yeah. you wouldn't yeah. wear those overshoes inside here because you're now in the lush interior of your own domestic dwelling, aren't yeah. you? And yeah. I mean, there's lovely suggestions of the outside world. The cherry tree and flower outside just yeah. hinted at. And you can even see more of the, the window reflected back in the mirror. So there is the, the suggestion of the outside world, but it's, it's what the Dutch are so, it's what the, the sort of Northern Renaissance artists are so good at doing, which is this, these interior domestic settings that are just so unique to them and so brilliantly done. This is a genre painting in many ways, isn't it? A Dutch yeah, genre painting. Yeah, that's true. It is very, it does feel quite confined, doesn't it? You're right, you've got these hints of the outdoor world, mm -hmm. but it does feel like they are kind of... They're confined. They're confined to this space. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, I think it's uh, it went on to inspire. I mean, this whole exhibition is called Van Eyck and the the Pre Rafts, but it's about this idea that this painting, with its many layers of symbolism, went on to inspire the Pre Rafts in a time when they were also trying to bring this level of symbolism and meaning and potential kind of religious narrative yeah. to secular scenes. Yeah, yeah. Out in a time of Victorian morality. Yeah, absolutely. And you also, I mean, you get that sort of resurgence of the idea in, you know, people like William Morris in absolutely. the mid-19th century really trying to bring back pre-industrial ideas of art and craft, yeah. going back to the guilds, you know, going back to non-mechanised means of production, yeah. really drawing on the medieval era as this uh, sort of pinnacle of cultural artistic expression, really. Yeah. And even the name pre-Raphaelites, pre-Raphael, I mean, this is the sort of thing, it, it was exhibited for the first time around 1830 and in London. I think it was this image that was seen very much as the inspiration for everything you've gone on to say, this, this rise of fascination with the handmade, with the skill of the, the, the creator, yeah. uh, not just as the fine arts, but in terms of multimedia, textile, and tiling, and um, enameling, metalwork. And so we see this sort of pattern where this painting has continued to influence. Yeah, um, exactly. Mean, it is an absolute classic. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, it is. And I mean, it's had so many different lives, as we've seen. It's, it's influenced so much culture. It's influenced, you know, I think those, some of those Victorian, some of the pre-Raphaelite images we're surrounded by, that's how many of us think of the medieval era now. Absolutely. It's through that Victorian representation. You couldn't be yeah. more right. Medievalisms, yeah. rather than going back to the true medieval, absolutely. And I mean, they're only doing their own version of an interpretation of this, which has its own flaws as well. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's the beauty of looking at a painting like this, is every generation, every new social in, um, environment brings its own levels of interpretation to it, doesn't it? That's, totally. That's art history theory, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. But yeah. I think that it's exciting, and I'm, I'm, I'm so jealous of the fact you've got to immerse yourself in this painting through the outfit. That must have been a once-in-a-lifetime thing, yeah? It totally was. I mean, it completely was. It was absolutely just, I mean, just unbelievable. We're actually, the show that's on next week. I'm really excited. 
Surprise, surprise, the Black Prince, the isn't Black it? Prince. <gasps> yeah. So did you get, sorry, I know this is going off on one, because again, I did, I, I, I live in Woodstock, that's where he was born. Uh, right, um, right. But his tavern and everything is above the grave in Canterbury. Yeah. Did you get access to the original to see? We did. Yeah. We did, we did. It was so, so, so exciting. It was so exciting. Because, you know, you mentioned earlier the fact that it's so difficult to find extant garments. Exactly. For a certain age, textiles deteriorate, we, you know, so few remain. So the jupon of the Black Prince is absolutely invaluable Aww. in terms of dress history, you know, cultural history. So to be able to see it was like mind, oh my absolutely gosh. mind-blowing. I'm going to have to get loads more out of you once we finish recording because that, that just excites me so much. The making, like you say, Definitely. the creation of these things is And you, met, you know, earlier you, talk, you were talking about things appearing maybe sort of slightly gaudy to our yeah. eye. Wait until you see the black. Hell prince. yeah! Oh my it's going to be heraldry yeah, central. Uh, <laughs> Have you seen the Luttrell Psalter where you see um, the, the Lord, Lord Luttrell and he's got his wife, his daughter, his horse, himself, his helmet, everything decked out in his coat of arms, and Amazing. it just looks like the most the most gaudy thing you've ever seen. <laughs> I love that. I love it. So OTT. Really, yeah. It's like Louis Vuitton on everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah, it, I mean, there's so many things that, that are exciting about what you're doing. I'm so excited to follow your work and carry Thank on you. and see what you go on and do. And I know you're writing at the moment, aren't you? I am. I'm writing another book at the moment, which is going to be out this uh, September. Oh, exciting. What's that on? Yeah, it's called The Fashion Chronicles. Ooh. And what it is, it's kind of, I'm looking at, well, I'm looking at what I have termed 100 of the best dressed people in history. Oh, nice. Yeah. Ooh. And so I'm basically looking at people and how they've used clothing in the past going right back to ancient history and right up to Beyonce. So. Oh my goodness, this is so going to be on my Christmas list. This is my kind of, of book. Um, and you're on Twitter, you're on Instagram. What's yeah, your... on all of those at Amber Butcharts. Excellent. Uh, so you can find me there, you can contact me through there and hopefully the series will still be on iPlayer when this goes out as well. Fingers so crossed. And well. also, um, when's the, is this the last in the series that goes out? No, we've got, we've got The Black Prince and then the final one the following week is Marie Antoinette. Oh, God, it just gets better and better. <laughs> I'm fanning myself here, uh, uh, detective listeners. It's been an unbelievable pleasure. Um, listeners, you'll be able to find a high-definition version of the Arnafini portrait. Uh, do zoom in on it. That's one of the most fun things to do, to get right in and see the microscopic detail of this. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast. We've got loads more exciting ones to come. And um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I will be posting lots more art detectors for you soon. Amber, you're a star. This has been Thanks amazing. Thanks for having me. It's been brilliant. Thank you. <laughs>